Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. I just had the great pleasure and also the great honor of talking with David Todd Roy about his massive translation project, The Plum in the Golden Vase, or The Jinping Mei. This was published in five volumes between 1993 and 2013 with Princeton University Press, and the occasion of our conversation was prompted by the very recent publication of volume five of the five volumes of the translation, which just came out a couple of months ago. Now, this is an incredibly important um, achievement. It's a massively, massively important work of fiction, not just for those of us who study and work on and teach China, but also for anybody who's interested in literature and its history. It's a work that is absolutely required reading for any of us who works on pre-modern, late imperial China, but also increasingly it's coming into the curricula of uh, courses on world history, world literature, and one of the reasons that that's possible is the hard work spanning really half of a century, if not more than that, of David Roy on this stuff. Okay, so the volumes themselves comprise a total of 100 chapters of the work. Volume 1, The Gathering, was first published in 1993, and this is chapters 1 through 20. This volume introduces the main characters and sets the stage for the action to come. Volume 2, The Rivals, was first published in 2001, and this comprises chapters 21 through 40 of the novel. Here the plot thickens, and among the major developments um, are Li Pinger, one of the main characters, has a baby, and this is ultimately going to be one of the plot developments that's going to trigger down the road a series of events that's ultimately going to culminate in the downfall of the main character. Also, uh, another one of the main characters consorts with a nun to make a potion with which to conceive a child. And so there's a lot of here and elsewhere attention to and sort of nuanced discussion of Buddhism and the benefits and drawbacks thereof um, by whoever the author was who produced this novel. From the perspective of a historian of medicine, Volume 3, The Aphrodisiac, published in 2006 and comprising chapters 41 through 60 of the novel, is particularly fascinating. And here's where we see uh, the main uh, character, Shi Menqing, get this aphrodisiac from an Indian monk. Again, sort of the dangers of Buddhism and the opportunities thereof. And he gets this aphrodisiac, which he proceeds to use and in all kinds of ways with all kinds of of people in all kinds of places. Um, and this is one of the volumes that has a lot of really, uh, one of many volumes that has a lot of really explicit sexual descriptions. Um, and so you should know, this is not something that I asked very much about because it's something that there's a lot of attention to elsewhere and in other interviews and other descriptions of this novel, but there's a whole lot of sex in this novel and um, volume three has some pretty graphic down and dirty descriptions of it. 
Nonetheless, the sex in this novel is often occasioned by the use of this aphrodisiac. And so one of the things that's really fascinating um, in this part of the book is the really interesting account of medicine, recipes, pharmaceuticals, and other aspects of the history of health and healing and medicine that you can find as just one of the many, many topics treated in great detail that aren't necessarily sexual or aren't only um, related to sex that you see in this novel. So a lot of stuff happens in this volume that then climaxes in volume four, aptly named The Climax, which was first published in 2011 and which comprises chapters 61 through 80. In this fourth volume of the book, a lot of the main characters die. One of the um, main characters is, is then born at the same time. And there's a lot in this volume that ultimately um, sees us understanding the end of the life of the main protagonist, Ximen Ching, so that it sets up what's going to come uh, in the next final volume, volume five, The Dissolution. This is the volume that just came out this year. It comprises chapters 81 through 100, and it wraps up the story and follows the remaining characters after the death of Ximen Ching. All told, this is a massive, massive compendium of not just some really fascinating and pleasurable stories. And so I should say it's a fabulous read. It's a lot of fun to read. And one of the reasons uh, for that is the clear amount of pleasure and fun that David Roy had in translating the work that comes off as, as or it comes out as you'll see, um, or you'll hear about later in the conversation, really on every page. It's just a fabulously fun novel to read. It's also a majorly important primary source for understanding the daily life of the mid to late 16th century when it was um, originally written. So I will wrap this up so that you can get right to it. It was an absolute pleasure. And as I mentioned, um, a, really a privilege to talk with David about his life brink that brought him to the project in the first place, some of his um, most memorable moments of the novel and how he thinks about some of the subtleties of translation. And he points out, um, I'll mention also, some of the tricks that he did here in his translation work that might not be obvious to a reader um, from the first reading, but that uh, hopefully you'll do what I'm doing right after I finish this recording and going back and rereading some of those moments, um, because uh, there's a lot of really wonderful subtlety here that repays rereading over and over again. Okay, so it was a pleasure. Um, I hope you'll have an occasion to pick up some of these volumes or all of them and read through them. There are wonderful pleasurable to read, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're here today to talk with David Todd Roy about his project translating five massive volumes of The Plum in the Golden Vase, or Jinping Mei. And this came out over the years 1997 through just this year in 2013 with Princeton University Press. David, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today about this amazing accomplishment. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Thank you. Let me just correct one thing. Sure. The first volume of my translation came out in hardback form in 1993, not 97. Ah, that's right. Of course. Sorry. This is um, the, in two different areas of my notes. I had two different dates. So, yes, 1993. Okay. So the volumes were 93, 2001, 2006, 
2011 and 2013. Is that right? That, that's right. Perfect. Thank you so much. So, David, um, can we, let's get started off by just mentioning a couple of basic things about the novel. I'll kind of just set the stage and then ask you a little bit about it. So for listeners who don't um, have, who haven't yet had the opportunity to read the novel, The Jinping Mei is a si- late 16th century novel that was first published in 1618, if I'm getting that right. The, yes. It's set during the Northern Song Dynasty in the 12th century, but it also functions, according to many commentators, as a kind of commentary on late Ming life and the society in which it was written. So That's the, right. So the final volume of your five-volume English translation was just published in 2013, and re- this represents, as far as I can tell from um, my research, the culmination of 30 years of work. Um, the translation comes to five volumes, totaling almost 3,000 pages, a cast of more than 800 named characters, and more than, well more than 4,000 endnotes. So it's a massive, massive achievement, and um, well, I'm just totally delighted to have a chance to talk about even part of that project today with you. So, Thank you. So let's begin um, kind of at the beginning and talk a little bit about how you came to study China, but also the Chinese language in particular. Now, you've mentioned elsewhere that one of your earliest Chinese tutors had helped Pearl Buck translate the Shui Hu Zhuan, which is a novel that strongly influenced the Jinping Mei. So um, yeah. I wonder if you'd like to talk about any aspect of that and um, the way you came to want to study Chinese and Chinese literature and, and the formative experiences um, that you encountered along the way. Okay. Uh, My parents were Presbyterian missionaries in China. My father was associated with the... He was on the faculty of the University of Nanking. And uh, they went to China in 1930. And they spent their first two years studying Chinese intensively in Beijing and then moved to Nanking, or Nanjing, as it should correctly be pronounced, in 1932, and I was born there in 1933. So I was born in China, and uh, according to my parents, I was bilingual to the extent that I was lingual at all at the age of three, Uh, but then they had a furlough and came back to the United States for a year, which is customary for foreign missionaries. But During the time they were back in the United States, the Sino-Japanese War began in late 1937. And so they didn't go back to China until the winter of 1938. And at that time, the University of Nanking, with which they were associated, had moved from coastal China to far western China. And together with three other coastal universities uh, set up on the large, capacious campus of West China Union University. So during the Sino-Japanese War, there were five uh, universities uh, on that one campus, and I spent the years from 1938 to 1945 there. Mm. But, uh, and my brother and I, I have a younger brother, my parents thought of putting us in a Chinese school, but we didn't like that idea, so they just tutored us at home, and uh, we picked up 
uh, reasonably fluent spoken Chinese by osmosis, as it were, but uh, we did not learn to read or write the language. And then when we returned to the United States in 1945, uh, the summer of 45, after the European war was over, but before the Japanese war was over, we were flown out over the hump to India by the U.S. Air Force and then returned to the States by sea. And my father did not yet have a Ph.D., so he enrolled in the graduate program at Princeton University and uh, got his Ph.D. in 1948. So by the time he decided to return to China in 1948, the University of Nanjing had moved back to Nanjing, and uh, but my brother and I had spent three years without any exposure or use of the Chinese language, so we had virtually forgotten. Children are very adept at picking up foreign languages, but they forget them just as fast if they don't use them. So uh, we went back to China during the Chinese Civil War between the Communists and the Nationalists in 1948. I enrolled in a boarding school in Shanghai called the Shanghai American School. And my brother initially went to school in Nanking or Nanjing. But uh, during the year, the communists took Nanjing uh, in early April 1949 and didn't take Shanghai until the third week of May, 1949. And since my parents foresaw that this might happen, they sent my brother to join me at this Shanghai American School uh, over the Christmas vacation. So, <coughs> excuse me, the two of us were both uh, boarders in the Shanghai American School when the communists took over in 1949, and in fact, they marched into Shanghai right past the gate to our school uh, the same morning that I took my 10th grade final exam in uh, plane geometry. Oh my goodness. So then we were able to rejoin my parents in Nanjing in the summer of 1949. And uh, at that point, my mother thought, since we were both getting along in high school, that we would probably have to return to the United States to go to college within a year or two. And she thought, and, and we might not have a chance to return to China. And she thought it would be a shame if having spent as much of our childhood as we had in China, we didn't learn the language better. So she hired uh, an experienced language teacher who had been teaching Westerners Chinese by the direct method for more than 40 years. Mm. His name was Zhao Yanan, and he was the one who had been one of those who helped Pearl Buck translate the Shui Hudra. Mm. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm going to take a drink of water. Sure, take your time.
So initially, the idea was simply that he would help us regain our fluency in spoken Chinese. <laughs> and that went pretty fast because like, we had some residual memories of it. But after a few weeks, I made the fatal mistake or the uh, <laughs> wonderful choice of asking uh, him to show me how to write my name in Chinese. <laughs> we had both been we had both been given Chinese names at the time of our birth, <coughs> but we couldn't even read or write them at that point. Mm-hmm. So he wrote out my name in large characters with the strokes numbered. <coughs> And uh, I stayed up half the night writing my name, <laughs> egotist that I am. And <laughs> the next day I asked him to show me how to write our street address in Chinese, and he did. And by the third day, my brother got annoyed because this teaching me the written language was taking time away from his relearning a spoken language and complained to my mother. So my mother decided that she would hire the same tutor to come to us for an hour every day, uh, two hours every day, rather, and he'd spend the first hour with the two of us uh, relearning spoken Chinese and the second hour concentrating on the written language with me. Mm-hmm. So by this time, I had become obsessively... <coughs> obsessively interested in the written language, which is the Chinese script is so much more fascinating than any of the Western alphabets. Mm -hmm. So, as many teenagers do, I became obsessed and for that for that year, I spent virtually all my free time working on the Chinese written language, which really interested me right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I had always been interested in Western literature, but I hadn't known anything significant about Chinese literature. So in connection with learning to read the language, I decided to try to read up something uh, on Chinese literature. And uh, when I read about the history of Chinese fiction, uh, one of the works that uh, was mentioned in whatever the works were that I consulted was the Jinping Mei, or the the, uh, Form in the Golden Vase. And there was a... The first complete or more or less complete English translation in four volumes had been published in London in 1939 by a man named Clement Egerton. Uh, and I looked up a copy of that in the University of Nanking Library. And, uh, but I soon discovered that uh, <clears throat> whenever the novel referred to sexual activity, 
those passages were rendered into Latin. <laughs> That's right. Because when it was published in 1939, it could not have been published in England uh, if those passages had been translated uh, into English. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was a teenager, and the fact that this novel apparently contained quite a bit of description of sexual activity uh, piqued my curiosity. And uh, I started trying to see if I could read it in Chinese. And I found it extremely difficult because this is a novel that uh, employs the entire gamut of Chinese literary styles, from ancient classical Chinese uh, down to ordinary vernacular and even to street slang and uh, that kind of language. And uh, so it was very slow going, but I was, uh, I found it interesting, uh, not only for the sexual passages. I should mention that the novel had then and uh, had since it first appeared and still has uh, a reputation for, in, in some cases, it's called a work of pornography because it contains numerous passages of very explicit descriptions of sexual activity. Uh, however, I discovered in the course of trying to read it that uh, the detail detailed descriptions of sexual activity are no more detailed or no more comprehensive than the descriptions of every other factor of facet of everyday life. The descriptions of eating, for example, it doesn't just say that they ate down, sat down to dinner, it tells you what they ate for dinner. And when the women appear in in, in any scene, uh, they don't only tell you that such and such a woman walked into the room, but they tell you exactly what she was wearing. Uh, her costumes, the what sort of jewelry she had in her hair, what kind of earrings she had on, whether she had bangles on her wrists, etc., etc. And uh, the most of the characters in the novel are morally corrupt and uh, so it also devotes just as much detailed attention to acts of corruption and uh, abuse of the legal system and things of that kind as it does to sexual overindulgence etc so one of the things that really distinguishes this novel from any of its predecessors is that it was the first Chinese novel that describes in uh, almost unbelievable detail uh, everyday life in China in the 16th century. As you pointed out, the novel is set in the uh, early years of the 12th century, but uh, it actually describes... 16th century Chinese life. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the preceding novels had concentrated on emperors and kings 
high government officials, <coughs> generals on the battlefield, mm-hmm. uh, bandit chieftains, <coughs> or mythological figures. None of them had much description of ordinary life or ordinary people. Excuse me just a second. Sure. So anyway, Mm -hmm. I soon found that (coughs) this novel's reputation for its sexual descriptions was accurate enough. There were lots of such descriptions, and they were uh, graphic and detailed, Mm -hmm. but that that was only one aspect of what the author was apparently trying to do, which was depict realistically what daily life was like. Mm-hmm. As a result, this novel is not only significant as a work of literature, but is probably the the most important source for anyone who wishes to understand what daily life in China was like in the late Ming Dynasty. Uh, it describes incredible, uh, a real panorama of things, including um, marriage ceremonies, funeral ceremonies. It probably has more detailed descriptions of funerary rites uh, than any other work in the Chinese language. Mm-hmm. Uh, religious ceremonies, both Taoist and Buddhist and Confucian, uh, and so forth and so on. So it, it's uh, uh, just an extraordinary, extraordinarily detailed depiction of all the aspects of Chinese daily life. So by the time, well, so my brother and I lived with my parents for the academic year of 49 to 50, studying Chinese and being tutored by my parents and their colleagues on the faculties until the Korean War broke out in late May of 1950. My parents decided that they would still try to stay in China since they were there as missionaries, not as representatives of the United States. And so, but they thought that they had better send my brother and me back to the States. So we returned to the United States in the summer of 1950. And uh, I lived with my father's sister and her family, who lived in... Marion, PA, a suburb of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And my brother went to a boarding school in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, but since I was already pretty much determined to become a China specialist, uh, through friends of my parents, I got in touch with the professor of Chinese at the University of Pennsylvania whose name is Dirk Bader. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
uh, he agreed to tutor me in classical Chinese uh, twice a week. And I was going to school at a Quaker school called uh, Friends Central uh, in the suburb of Philadelphia. And the school agreed to give me credit for the work I did on Chinese at the University of Pennsylvania. So twice a week in the afternoon, I would leave the school and go into town uh, to study Chinese with Dirk Bader. And I was the only student in his class, and he told me that I was the most advanced student of Chinese at the university. <laughs> well, I was still a senior in high school. <clears throat> so toward the end of that year, I had to decide where to apply for college, and I asked his advice. And he said, since I wanted to become a China specialist, uh, he would recommend Harvard University, which, uh, of which he was an alumnus himself. And it was one of the four or five major universities in the country at that time, which had uh, well-known Chinese language programs or Chinese studies programs. So I applied to Harvard and was admitted there and uh, majored in Chinese history. But during my undergraduate career, I was drafted for the tail end of the Korean War and uh, served as an enlisted man for two years. And uh, because of my knowledge of the Chinese language, I was assigned to the uh, Army Security Agency and sent first to Japan and then to Taiwan. So I spent a year in Taiwan, uh, initially listening to low-level military broadcasts from across the straits in mainland China. And uh, But after a while, the, the U.S. intelligence services and the nationalist Chinese intelligence services were cooperating at that time. And the the Chinese were also listening to uh, low-level broadcasts from across the strait and uh, making notes on what they heard in Chinese. And uh, when they found that I was uh, better able than anyone else available to read these handwritten Chinese notes, they put me to doing that. So I spent most of my time in Taiwan during my working hours uh, deciphering uh, Chinese notations about what they had heard from across the straits. So that was, uh, and then I might add, I, uh, together with a few friends who were also China specialists, we rented a house in downtown Taipei. with the help of a Chinese friend who lived there and and was our theoretically our landlord, though we were paying the rent. And uh, he spoke no English. So whenever we were in town, when we had time off, we also had to speak Chinese. So that experience of spending a year or more in Taiwan uh, greatly improved my Chinese so that 
when I returned to the United States and re-entered Harvard, I had had mixed grades before I was drafted, but after returning, I made straight A's right through my Ph.D. Uh, I, I might add that uh, the experience of spending two years out of school in the Army and abroad was a, uh, a very educational experience. And uh, I was, uh, I, I think that I understood the world and my own country much better than I had before I was drafted. Mm-hmm. So that and my experience with the Chinese language in Taiwan both improved my academic performance after I returned. Mm-hmm. So uh, I studied. I was a Chinese history major, but I also studied Chinese literature with some of the leading experts in the United States uh, in graduate school, and uh, was offered the opportunity to teach classes in literary Chinese uh, while I was still a graduate student myself, which I did for my last two years at Harvard. And I was then offered a job at Princeton University before I even had my Ph.D. So I moved to Princeton in 1963, and I taught there from 63 to 67 before moving to the University of Chicago. And while I was at Princeton, I taught Chinese literature. And in my survey courses on Chinese fiction, uh, I, of course included the Jinping Mei or the Plum in the Golden Days. But uh, I used a one-volume abridged translation from a German translation that was done in the 1930s. But even there, teaching it further enhanced my understanding of how this was much more than a work of sexual description. And I became more and more fascinated by it and interested in its rhetorical complexity and uh, its multiple facets. So then when I moved to the University of Chicago on being offered a tenured position in 1967, the first year I was here, I was offered the opportunity to teach a graduate seminar on any subject of my choice. And I chose to teach a seminar on the Jinping Mei in Chinese. And I only had one student sign up. (laughs) I was very fortunate to be at the University of Chicago because most universities can't afford to let people teach one student at a time. Mm -hmm. And the student who signed up was, like myself, a mishkid, as we called each other, because we had grown up in China as sons of missionaries. His parents had been Lutheran missionaries in China, while my parents had been Presbyterian missions missionaries. So the two of us read through the entire Chinese text of the novel, which runs to 3,000 pages, approximately, in its earliest form. Uh, and it took us two years to do so. And then my student, uh, who was actually enrolled in the Chicago Divinity School, 
wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on the Jinping Mei, and it was a brilliant dissertation. Uh, it was interesting that uh, two sons of missionaries <laughs> should work on a novel that still had a notorious reputation uh, and uh, produce such excellent results. Mm-hmm. So over the years since then, I, uh, while I was still teaching at the university, I taught seminars in the Jinping Mei uh, off and on uh, many times. And the more I taught it, the more fascinated I became by it. And one of the things that I became fascinated by was the fact that it incorporates uh, as many as 900 or more passages of, passages of verse or descriptive parallel prose, uh, many if not all of which are borrowed from earlier works of literature. But... Uh, the sources are not mentioned in the text, so that uh, you have to be a real scholar to know where they come from. And I had also become fascinated earlier in my career, while I was still a senior in high school, by James Joyce. So I was familiar with the Joycean techniques, especially in Ulysses, and uh, he also, of course, incorporates hundreds of passages of contemporary popular songs and so forth, uh, who his contemporary readers would presume would have known, and so that he could use these quotations to reflect on what he was describing in the novel, ironically or otherwise, uh, if the readers knew the words of the original texts. And I found that this technique was already full-blown in the Jinping Mei. Mm-hmm. And throughout the novel, uh, many of the poems that are incorporated, once they have been identified as to their source, in, turn out to reflect ironically on the events in the chapter in question. And another factor in the novel was it was the first Chinese novel to incorporate numerous references to and quotations from and descriptions of performances of earlier works of Chinese drama. And there again, in order to understand the point of the dramatic passages that are quoted or referred to, you have to know the plays from which they come. And if you do, you will find that in almost every case, they reflect ironically on the conduct of the people who call for their performance uh, or are in the audience. And uh, another of the most brilliant students I had wrote her dissertation on this subject uh, and won the prize for the best dissertation in the humanities division that year. And she's now a professor of Chinese literature at the University of Pittsburgh. Her name is Catherine Carlitz. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, in any case, the more I studied the novel 
And uh, the more I was uh, stimulated by the brilliant students that I had who studied it with me, the more convinced I became that it was really a literary masterpiece and that all of these extraordinarily sophisticated rhetorical techniques, etc., had not been brought out in all of the earlier European or English attempts to translate the novel. So, Mm -hmm. for 15 or 20 years before I actually undertook the translation, uh, I spent a great deal of time trying to identify the sources which are quoted in the text. And I discovered that there were so many that I had to make an, a three-by-five card index. I read about this. This is amazing. To every line of poetry or parallel prose or proverbial sayings in the entire novel. And uh, oh. several people have said, why didn't you just hire a graduate student to do, to do that for you? But the point is that it helped doing it myself, helped to fix these things in my memory. So when I actually undertook the translation, I had this filing cabinet right at my elbow with these tens of thousands of three-by-five cards arranged alphabetically. So if I... And then I tried to... I undertook to try to read all of the extant works of vernacular literature and drama that had appeared before the novel did. And in the course of doing so, whenever I encountered a poem or a passage that uh, struck a bell in my memory, in a matter of seconds, I could just lean over and open the drawer in my filing cabinet and see whether or not it was indeed copied into the Jinping Mei. And the more sources I discovered the more fascinated I became. And finally, my, my colleague, Anthony Yu, uh, who's a professor in the Divinity School here, uh, a few years before I undertook this translation, he had started to translate The Journey to the West, or Xi or Ji, uh, another of the most famous Chinese novels that had appeared before the Jinping Mei, mm-hmm. and he eventually published it in four volumes, and that was one thing that gave me an incentive to undertake the translation. But the other main thing was the student, Catherine Carlitz, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, also really urged me to undertake a translation. And so I started the translation in 1982, and finished it in 2012. So it took me exactly 30 years uh, of the actual translation work, but you could add 10 or 20 years before that uh, for research and teaching of the novel. And I couldn't have done as good a job if I hadn't had that 20 years of work as well. But in any case, 
I decided that most of the translations of any works of Chinese literature or non-European literature into English that appeared before the Second World War attempted to make them sound as much as possible like English literature rather than trying to bring out the uh, unusual or different rhetorical aspects of the original text. So I decided to do just the opposite, that I would try to, to the extent possible, to render all of the rhetorical features of the original. Uh, I was worried for a while that that might put Western readers off, but actually I think that was, that was wrong. I think that I have succeeded in making it possible for Western readers to get a much better grip over what a Chinese work of this kind is like to read in Chinese. And that's why I chose to indent uh, all the quoted passages, uh, whether identified or not, uh, and uh, various other tricks to try to make the rhetorical techniques uh, accessible in English. Um, over this is uh, over the thirty years that you were actively working on this translation. That's a long time, and it's a lot of work. I can't imagine that um, over that time, your understanding of, or interpretation of, or feeling of the significance of the novel remained unchanged. Right? I mean, the closest kind of reading that we can give to a work in many ways and many translators feel is to translate it. So did you feel at all in any specific way that um, your interpretation of the novel or the way you understood it and its significance, the kinds of phenomena um, that were present in the narrative themselves transformed um, over the process of your translation of the novel? Um, Yes, I did. Um, I haven't mentioned yet um, the the protagonist, or you might call him the anti-hero of the novel, is a middle-class merchant, upwardly mobile middle-class merchant, who is morally corrupt to the core, and uh, buys an official position through bribery, and then uses the influence of his uh, political position uh, to enhance his economic enterprises, etc., uh, a not unknown feature of American society. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has six main women in his household, one legitimate wife and five concubines, and he also has sexual liaisons with other people as well. But uh, I decided that the head of the household and the six women, uh, under his jurisdiction, you might say, stood for the emperor and the heads of the six uh, bureaus uh, at the top of the Chinese bureaucracy during the Ming Dynasty. And since virtually everyone in the novel is morally corrupt, I argue that uh, the author was 
not only writing a fascinating work of literature, but by implication, condemning the emperor and the practices of the officialdom of the time. The, the Confucian theory from ancient times is that the emperor, who is called in Chinese the son of heaven, is a sort of uh, intermediary between heaven and mankind, and that his conduct influences the conduct of all the people subordinate to him, from the highest officials in the bureaucracy right down to middle-class families and uh, the dregs of society. I call this the moral trickle-down theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, the implication of the novel, therefore, is, oh, I might add that in traditional China, uh, there was a common analogy made between the household and the state. So the head of a household was regarded as analogous to the head of the state. And therefore, I came to the conclusion that the novel was a subtle attempt to show the utter corruption of the ruling emperor at the time and that the results of that corruption as they trickled down through the society. So that is also why the novel to this day remains anonymous because the author was aware that if anyone saw what he was up to and called it to the attention of the emperor, uh, he was very likely to lose his head. I am sure that there were people who knew who the author was, but uh, they also realized that they would be risking his life if they made that public. So I think that's the reason why the authorship is still not known. Um, I have a theory as to who the author may have been, as I mentioned in my introduction, Mm -hmm. but there is no... Uh, there's no smoking gun, there's no proof. And actually, more than 50 other people have been suggested as possible authors by scholars in China and elsewhere. But none of them has been able to muster uh, enough evidence to make a, a waterproof case for any of them. Now, David, one of the most wonderful things about this novel from the perspective, or about this translation, rather, from the perspective of a reader, is that it, it really is so much fun, right? The language is very pleasurable, and it really reads as the product of somebody who's really enjoyed this work. I mean, it's just, it's hilarious, and this kind of translation isn't possible if, if the translator is not, not only committed, but also really enjoying the process. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, and that's just, that's on every single page of this translation, certainly every single page that I've written. Given that... Well, thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, Let me just say that uh, it is my belief that the litmus paper test of a really great work of literature is that it becomes more enjoyable 
and more interesting upon every rereading. So needless to say, I have reread this work, all 3,000 pages of it, innumerable times, and rather than becoming boring, because I've read it before so often, it becomes more interesting to me every time I've read it, so that after spending more than 50 years reading and rereading and teaching and translating it, uh, far from having lost interest in it, uh, at every step along the way, I became more interested. And I mentioned the fact that the novel includes uh, passages in the entire gamut of traditional Chinese styles. And I tried in my translation to the best of my ability to indicate uh, stylistic shifts from the sort of language of official documents or imperial edicts and so forth or religious ceremonies uh, to street slang and uh, uh, pejorative swearing. Mm -hmm. When the women mm -hmm. in the household quarrel, they really go after each other verbally. <laughs> And I tried to render that as vividly as possible, also as accurately as possible. Most of the earlier translators had tried to uh, uh, whitewash some of that stuff. So I thought it was more important to bring it out. Are there any, um, I know this is probably, this is a huge question, um, but it, are there any particular moments that immediately stand out to you as being particularly enjoyable or your, some of your favorite moments in the novel, either from the perspective of a translator or from the perspective of a translator slash reader? What were some of your favorite parts of translating this? Mm. I know it's a big... <laughs> It's a big question for someone who's read this so many times and has spent so much time on it, but if anything immediately stands stands out, I'd love to know that. Hmm. Hmm. Um. Well, you've, hmm. you've mentioned elsewhere um, some of the most challenging or sort of time-consuming parts of this. For hmm. example, in Chapter 29... There's a fortune oh, yeah. teller, right? Um, so, and you spent, what is this, two years um, yes. doing research? I spent two years reading traditional Chinese fortune teller manuals uh, so that I could translate it accurately. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I should mention, you have mentioned the fact that it's heavily annotated. Yes. But I, I should just mention the fact that uh, the reason I chose to annotate it so thoroughly is because I want the readers who are interested enough to really dig into it uh, to realize just how erudite the author must have been. The uh, Some Chinese literary historians, until quite recently, have argued that because the book contains many of the techniques used by oral storytelling at the time, that the author could have been just a, a, an oral storyteller with the education of a village schoolmaster or something like that. But uh, as I try to bring out in my notes, the author must have been an extraordinarily sophisticated and knowledgeable person who must have had a library of reference works at his fingertips because 
the passages uh, on fortune telling, for for example, or the passages on religious ceremonies of various kinds, mm-hmm. uh, can all be traced to original sources, which are quoted verbatim, so that the author, a, a village storyteller, wouldn't have had all this material at his fingertips. The author must have had a photographic memory on the one hand, but he must have had an extensive library uh, on the other hand, uh, or he could never have produced a work of this kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, even from um, from the perspective of a sometime historian of medicine, it's, it's some of what I work on. The uh, Oh, medicine is another point. There, there are numerous passages of uh, medical prescriptions and diagnoses and so forth, and they too are based on primary sources in the history of Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing, and just from the just thinking about the um, the craft and the demands of that on a translator. I mean, the kinds of materials or the kind of descriptions and discussions of, you know, not just um, medical diagnosis, which is very, very detailed, but medical recipes and prescriptions. Mm-hmm. I mean, some the whole um, volume on the aphrodisiac, I think, um, mm-hmm. that here, I mean, it's, yes, it's it's got some of the most sexually explicit discussions, but it's also in some way all about pharmaceuticals and medicine and the, the effects thereof. And so, did that require any special kind of research commitment, or um, well, yeah? How did, how did you deal with that aspect? I mean, that's that's why it took me thirty years, right? Because, because I had to bone up on all of this stuff. Right. Uh, I uh, well, let, let me say one more thing about the rhetorical technique that just oh, occurred please. to me. Sure. Um, the novel is sometimes described as being a work of realism, and it is that, certainly, for the reasons I have already stated. But the realism is periodically interrupted by burlesque. And I think that this, as I say in my introduction, is a technique the author wanted the passages of sexual activity in particular are likely to attract readers, some readers anyway, if not all, and uh, the reader will tend to identify with one or more of the characters involved in the sexual activity. And then all of a sudden, this realistic and detailed description of sexual activity will be interrupted by a shift into burlesque. And this will call the reader short and force him to examine himself and uh, realize that if he was identifying with the some of the corrupt and sexually promiscuous characters in the novel and enjoying their sexual activities vicariously, that that meant that he was no better than they were. Mm -hmm. In other words, this was a rhetorical technique designed to bring the reader up short at periodic intervals and cause the reader to examine himself and his own reactions to the text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... uh in addition to the, um, we've talked a little bit about this uh, 
fortune telling research, right? Two years and the demands of um, researching all of the, for example, medical issues that just pervade the entire novel. Were there any other aspects of the translation that immediately stick out for you as, as particularly challenging? Are there any moments that um, took, you, as the fortune telling um, moment did, a particularly um, robust commitment from you in terms of research and translating, or any other aspects of the craft itself that you'd like to talk about that were particularly um, challenging and or transformative for you? Hmm. Uh, one of the most challenging things was how to, as you recall, in the third volume, <clears throat> when the protagonist meets the Indian monk right. from whom he obtains the aphrodisiac, it's described very subtly uh, so that the Indian monk is made to resemble uh, an erecting penis. Mm-hmm. And uh, Many readers read through that without getting it. And there are quite a few passages like that in the novel where it took a lot of time to figure out how to do it in English so that it would also be subtle enough so that many people would read through it without noticing what it was actually doing, but clear enough so that someone who thought about it would suddenly see the light of day. So that, that that sort of passage was also very challenging to do. Uh, and for listeners... Another thing... Oh, sorry, go on. What? Oh, I was just going to mention, the, for listeners, that was in Chapter 49, for listeners who... Yes, right. Li <laughs> um, Ping Er, the favorite concubine of Ximen Ching, the protagonist, dies in... Uh, Chapter 61, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the following five or six chapters, uh, the following five or six chapters are devoted wholly or in part to funeral observances for her, which are way overdone. Mm-hmm. This is an indication of the fact that his household was governed by favoritism, which is another no-no in traditional Chinese Confucian belief. Uh, when the emperor shows favoritism to his officials, uh, that corrupts them. And Xi Ching shows favoritism to his wives and concubines, and uh, that corrupts them. And in any case, so he... He way overdoes the funeral observances for this concubine of his, uh, which is indicated by the fact that after he himself dies, the funeral observances for him, the head of the household, uh, are puny by comparison. But (coughs) one of the most challenging things for me as a translator was dealing with all the technical detail of these enormously uh, detailed descriptions of funerary 
uh, observances and activities. Mm-hmm. And I'm somewhat afraid that uh, I should mention that the fourth volume of my translation is one-third longer than any of the other four volumes. And uh, I think that some people may be bored by the fourth volume because of such detailed description of things like funerary activities. But... Uh, oh, no. One reason. <laughs> That's no? where so okay. much of the action is. Everyone's dying. They're, they're poisoning. And, uh, no, I, I, um, I'll just, from the perspective of one reader, definitely not boring. Okay, definitely. well, good. <laughs> but go on. I'm sorry. Well, one reason why the fourth volume is longer than the others is that the pace of the narrative slows down uh, leading up to the death of the protagonist in chapter 79. And uh, everything becomes slower and more and more detail is is put into it. (laughs) And um, then once he dies, the narrative speeds up and... uh, uh, as the members of the household scatter after his death, the pace of the narrative moves at uh, many, many times the speed of the narrative leading up to his death. And uh, I even suggest somewhat subtly in my introduction that uh, the symbolical reason for doing it this way is that... Uh, the slow, slowing down and increasing amount of detail leading up to his death is like the uh, tumescence of the male organ when it's getting ready to, for sexual activity. And uh, after the ejaculation, everything stops and speeds up again. Uh, so anyway, there, there are just innumerable subtle aspects of the text that uh, people are unlikely to notice or think about on the first reading, but become clearer and clearer uh, as they reread it. Are there? I know I've kept you for almost an hour, so I don't want to um, keep you for too much longer just to respect your time. But as long as you've uh, mentioned it, are there any other of these subtle aspects of the prose and the translation that you'd like to mention for listeners who may not get them on the first reading, but that you feel are particularly important? So you've already mentioned um, in Chapter 49 the description of the Indian monk who you know, who gives Shimen Ching this aphrodisiac that ultimately um, through fault of both his own and Panjin Lian brings about his demise. And you've just mentioned this sort of metaphorical um, tumescence and then ejaculation that the pace of the narrative takes on. Is there anything else like that that immediately comes to mind that you think listeners should um, should look out for? Well, in, in Chapter 80, after the death of Xi Manqing, uh a funeral service is held for him uh, and uh, and someone is hired by uh, his drinking buddies uh, to give a a eulogy at his funeral. And the eulogy is another work of Dubal on Pondre. It's describing him and his hangers-on as a penis and his testicles. Mm -hmm. And 
many readers don't notice that unless it's called to their attention. Thank you. I did. I did not notice that. <laughs> I'm going to go back and reread it now. <laughs> okay. Let me say one more thing. Of course. Um, um, let's see. What was I going to say? have thought that the novel was that the underlying ideology of the novel was Buddhist or Taoist since there are innumerable Taoist and Buddhist ceremonies described in mind-boggling detail in the course of the narrative but I argue that the underlying ideology of the novel is neither Buddhist nor Taoist but classical Confucian, and particularly the version of classical Confucianism attributed to the philosopher Shinzi, who lived in the 3rd century B.C. And uh, Mm -hmm. to take Buddhism, for example, at the end of the novel, uh, a Buddhist priest who calls up the spirits of the deceased main characters in the novel and describes the roles into which they will be reborn in their next lives. And in virtually every case, they're reborn in virtually the same uh, social uh, levels that they were in in the course of the novel. So this lies directly in the face of Buddhism. According to the Buddhist idea of karma, if you are corrupt in your lifetime, uh, you will be repaid by being reborn in a lower social order or even a lower species may be reborn as an animal, etc., etc. So many people have thought the novel shows that the uh, redemption at the end, uh, Buddhist redemption, but actually it flies right in the face of Buddhism. Uh, so, mm-hmm. And it should also be pointed out that Virtually every time Buddhist monks and uh, Taoist priests and Buddhist nuns appear in the course of the narrative, uh, there are asides in the author's voice uh, talking about the corruption of such people. Mm-hmm. So that it's hard for me to see how any serious reader of the novel could have believed that it was intended to promote either Buddhism or Taoism. And beware of Buddhists bearing medicine, right? Several points in the novel. Yes, yes, yes. 
Well, David, I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, This has been such a pleasure to talk with you about this, and it's sending me back to the novel to reread a whole bunch of things that I've missed my first time through. Is there anything else that we didn't have a chance um, to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, um, especially for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to sit down and go through all the volumes of the novel? Um. Oh, well, there is one other thing I haven't mentioned. Uh, Another of the the areas in which this novel is a pioneering work is that it's the first Chinese work of fiction that describes female psychology in a realistic and believable way. There are many women in the novel and Many of them are described in great detail, and uh, also their interactions are described in great detail and very realistic detail. When they uh, rub each other the wrong way or get involved in domestic quarrels, I know of no other work in world literature that describes the give and take involved in that kind of thing more uh, convincingly than this novel. So that's still another feature of the novel that I uh, find impressive. Well, congratulations. Um, it's an amazing achievement. It's also, uh, in addition to that, as I've mentioned, a huge pleasure to read. Um, and it rewards, I think, as you've mentioned, um, rereading and rereading. And so there's constantly something to learn. So thank you so much for spending the time. I really appreciate it. And it was a really a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you. I I have really enjoyed talking to you, and I appreciate your taking the trouble to get in touch with me. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.